So for anyone that's visiting with us today, I'm Doug McAlpine. I am not the pastor. I'm one of the elders at Melanie Park. And months ago, Todd asked me to come and preach on life-changing experiences with Jesus. And he assigned me Peter. And so as I started looking through at Peter and all the different stories about Peter, I became amazed. There is a whole lot about Peter in the scripture. And we are going to cover every story this morning. <laughs> no. You'll be glad to know we're only going to look at two different stories about Peter. I mean, and it was a challenging for me just to figure out which two stories to look at. We, I like Peter. His life was very imperfect. We don't see just all the right things he did. We see some of the wrong things that he did. He's very relatable because he made some big mistakes, but he also made some grand statements. You know, he struggled with things. He got called out on things. He made some wild, bold claims. But I think those are all things that help us relate to him. He asked for things that we'd never ask for. We'll look at one of those today. But as the two stories that I picked, uh, I picked them because there's kind of a theme that I see. And it's a theme of dependence, how God was wanting to build dependence into Peter. To me, dependence is not something we talk about very much. It's, we live in a culture that's highly independent. If you've traveled around the world much, you really notice this. You see how independent we are. We take great pride in being independent. We have an Independence Day. And we think we're self-made men, we're self-made women, we're taught not to ask for help. These are all just marks of our independence. If you go back to the Wild West, you hear about men pulling themselves up by their own bootstraps. If you start looking at movies, we think, I thought about John Wayne. John Wayne never asked for help. You know, if you want something more current, think about Jason Bourne or James Bond. They don't ask for help. They pretty literally saved the world by themselves independence, and we celebrate it. And so that's the culture that we're living in. Uh, my first experience around a different culture, one that's not independent like that, was when we lived in Austin, and we were involved with a group of Indonesian students. As I was helping them, we'd planned a retreat, and we're going to meet at a church and then drive out to the retreat. And there were about 40 of us and about 12 or so cars that were going to be on this trip. And so we're... Okay, okay. Uh, let's see, we had about 12 cars going out, and uh, as I was standing around waiting for the last ones, I started hearing little rumblings. One student had forgotten his sleeping bag. Another student had been just asked to help with music and needed to go back to his apartment and get a guitar. And so I'm thinking, okay, we're all going to go different ways and then go to the retreat. And finally, the last people got there, I handed out the maps, and I was letting them kind of lead this. And so I, my assumption was we'd get in our cars and meet at the retreat center. And one car would go get the guitar, and another one would go get the sleeping bag. But I was completely wrong. We got in our cars, and we caravaned to the first apartment and got the sleeping bag. And then we caravaned to the second apartment, all 12 cars of us, and got the guitar, the guitar and then we got on the highway, and we'd been going maybe 20 or 30 minutes, and we all pull off. And I ask them what's happening, and I find out that somebody needed to go to the bathroom. One person. We all pull off, 
And of course, we all are getting out of our cars and people are talking and some go get drinks. And about 20 minutes later, we get back in our cars and we go again. And a little down the road, we stop again. And so what I was thinking was going to be a two-hour trip became a four-hour experience. And you know who was bothered by that? The few Americans that were with us. Everyone else had a great trip. They enjoyed it thoroughly. They, that was their nature. That was how they did things. They did things together, not independently. And it really impressed me. I've still, I mean, this is many, many years ago, and I still think of that, of how different our culture is in terms of independence and dependence. I noticed again last year after our trip to Nigeria. Uh, for those who don't know, Sherry and I got to go to Nigeria and speak at a conference last year. And I've tried to keep up with some of the people we met through WhatsApp on my phone. And so as we text back and forth, I often, I typically start my conversation with, how are you doing? But I started noticing they would start their conversation with me with, how is your family? And as I was thinking about this, I realized they see things differently. They see themselves as part of a family. That's their key identity, their key unit. It's part of who they are, and it's their identifier. If their family is doing well, they're doing well. If their family's not well, they aren't well. Whereas us as Americans always ask how you are. We're individualistic. We're all by ourselves. If I'm doing okay, my family can kind of be doing whatever, and I can be okay. Again, it's just a picture of how independent we are. And I share these because I think our independence is so ingrained in this that we don't notice it. We don't think about it. We hear stories like this and we go, oh, I can't believe they did that. How inefficient to have to go to all these different apartments. But that's just our own independence speaking. Now, as I prepared the sermon and this whole week, God has been reminding me of how independent I am. Word to the wise, don't preach on independence. God will make you dependent for several days. Just going, are you sure? You know, I came about my own independence just from my family history partly. Growing up in Texas had a piece of it. But I think another big piece was my father. Uh, for those who don't know me or don't know my uh, life story, my father had a birth defect. On his left arm, just about two inches past the elbow, was the end, was the end of his stub. He had no left hand. But I don't ever remember him asking for help. And we did all kinds of things. He played golf very consistently. Every so often he would take us out and play tennis. And you think of tennis and, okay, one hand. But then you have to think about how do you serve in tennis with one hand. But he figured out a way. And we'd even play catch. Um, so we'd get our mitts and go out into the yard. And he'd hold his mitt under his arm, put his hand in it. I'd throw him a ball, he'd catch it. He'd put it back under his arm, throw the ball back, put his mitt back on. And he figured it out. He found a way by himself. And that was just what I grew up with. He was always doing things and never asking for help. The one time I remember him asking for help was when his shirts would come back from the laundry and they had unbuttoned his right sleeve. Normally he kept it buttoned and he would just slip his hand through it. But if it's unbuttoned, he doesn't have a left hand to button it, so he'd have to go ask mom to button his sleeve for him. And in that atmosphere, guess what I learned? Do things by yourself, figure out a way, you don't need help, you, you can be independent, do it on your own. And so that's the independence that's infiltrating our culture and us, and 
we can easily know it's just part of our nature. If you go all the way back to Adam and Eve, you can see they tried to cover up their own shame by sewing fig leaves together. They were being independent, take care of their own needs, not relying on God. I think that's different from what God wants. I think God wants us to live in dependence. And I think he's going to, was trying to teach Peter some of this. So if you'll turn to Matthew 14, we'll look at our first story. It's one that's very familiar to everybody, Peter walking on the water, Jesus walking on the water. So I'm going to start reading at verse 22. And immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side, while he sent the multitudes away. And after he had sent the multitudes away, he went up to the mountain by himself to pray. And when it was evening, he was there alone. But the boat was already many stadia away from the land, battered by the waves, for the wind was contrary. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea. And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were frightened, saying, It is a ghost! And they cried out for fear. And immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take courage, it is I, do not be afraid. And Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And he said to him, Come. And Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came toward Jesus. But seeing the wind, he became afraid and began to sink. And he cried out, saying, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretched out his hand and took hold of him and said to him, O oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind stopped. And those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, You are certainly God's son. And so as we read the passage, I think you probably noticed, like I did, that the very first word is immediately, which should make us all ask, okay, what just happened? And if you look above, you'll see it's the feeding of the 5,000. And so from five loaves and two fish, Jesus fed 5,000 people. And we have to remember that all the, the disciples were here watching this. They saw the whole event. They saw all the people. They saw how it started with just five loaves, two fish. They saw all the people fed. They helped pick up leftovers afterwards. They saw a true miracle. And I'm sure they were kind of speechless as to how they would handle that and how they would process that. Let me give you a little better picture of uh, put us in the story a little more. Um, it says 5,000 men, and once you add in the wives and children and the families that were all there, I'm thinking there's probably at least 15,000 people there. Now, Google tells me that the United Supermarket Arena has a capacity of 15,000. So imagine being in the supermarket arena, completely packed, full house, all the way from the bottom seat to the top seats in the uh, nosebleed section, people everywhere, and Jesus down on the floor with his disciples, and they have five loaves and two fish. And you see him break, and I'm not sure what happened from there, but all of a sudden you realize the whole auditorium, that whole arena, everyone in it has been fed, and there's even leftovers still. That's the number of people that were fed. It's hard for us to get our mind around that, but it's an amazing miracle. That's what the disciples are coming out of as this story starts. So in verse 22, immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side while he sent the crowds away. 
And after he had sent the crowds away, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. And it was evening, and he was there alone. So the disciples got into the boat, and they started rowing across the lake. He sends the crowds home, and I'm sure this took a while. I'm sure people wanted to kind of stay around and see Jesus. But he sent them home, and then he went up on the mountain to pray. For the disciples, being sent across this lake was probably not a big deal. It was probably kind of like normal, everyday life to them. Many of them were fishermen. I'm sure they had been on this lake many times. I'm sure they'd rowed across it, and rowing across at night probably wasn't a very big deal. But I think it wasn't an accident on Jesus' part that he sent them off alone. I think he had a lesson to teach them, and it was very intentional. He went up, Jesus himself went up on the mountain to pray. You know, I'm not sure if he was praying and thanking God for what had just happened, and the miracle that just had occurred, or if he was praying for what was about to be happening, or if it was just Jesus connecting with his Father and reaffirming and reconnecting with his own Father and rebuilding that relationship. You know, my personal opinion is it was probably all those things together. But Jesus was up on the mountain praying. The disciples were in the boat. You know, and that's what it says. Verse 24, the boat was already a long distance from the land, battered by waves, for the wind was contrary. So imagine the situation. From what I read, this lake is about seven miles across. And if you look in John 66, uh, there's a parallel passage. It says the disciples are about three or four miles out. So they're about halfway across. In the next verse, it talks about the fourth watch. Now, watches were, as we know from scenes, movies about sailors, times when people would stand watch that start about sunset, or we'll just say 6 p.m., and last for three hours. So the fourth watch is somewhere between 3 a.m., 6 a.m. in the morning. Now, if these guys started rowing at about 6 that means they've been rowing for eight, nine hours or more and are only halfway across the lake. And so they'd fed all the 5,000. I'm sure they were involved in that. Did all that work, picked up leftovers, got in a boat, and had been rowing for eight or nine hours. I think they were probably pretty tired, worn out. My guess is there might be some blame being thrown around. I, I mean, I could easily see if it was me and my friends you know, I told you we should have left earlier, or I told you we should have left later. Somebody's saying, I knew there was going to be a storm. I just knew it. You know, and they're sitting there blaming each other. But the one person they really should have blamed, the one who sent them off, wasn't there. But then he was. Look at verse 25. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea. When the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It is a ghost, and they cried out in fear. So Jesus came walking on the water to them. I know if it was me, and if I was rested, and it was a calm lake in broad daylight, and someone comes walking, I'm going to be scared. These guys had none of that. They were tired, it was dark, they were in a storm, and Jesus came walking towards them. And they're tough fishermen, and they cried out in fear. They thought they were seeing a ghost. That's the only explanation they could even come up with or think about. But it wasn't. It was Jesus. And I love Jesus' response here. He says, take courage. It is I. Do not be afraid. He didn't berate them. He didn't call them sissies. He didn't tease them about screaming like little girls. He assured them. He encouraged them. You know, and God alone is someone who could do this. 
Jesus walked on water. Imagine what these guys have experienced. They saw 5,000 fed. Now they're seeing Jesus walking on the water. I mean, I literally can't imagine what it would be like to see someone do that. And so in the midst of all this grandeur and all these miracles, Peter, with his normal Peter, talk first, think later, makes a grand statement. Verse 28, Peter said to him, Lord, if it's you, command me to come to you on the water. And he said, come. And Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water towards Jesus. So in the midst of all that chaos, this is what Peter chooses to say. I'm not sure if I'm more bothered by the fact that he's telling Jesus what to do or by the fact that he is making Jesus prove himself. If it's you, call me. Or tell, call me, come on, call me. I don't think he was that arrogant in his attitude, but I know that's what my heart tends to do sometimes. But in the midst of all that, Jesus doesn't get any response. He's unfazed by those. And he simply says, come. And that's what happens. Imagine the experience. Peter is in the boat, and he's, I'm not sure if he stands up or if he just puts his leg over. And when his foot touches the water, he can stand up. He's seeing this. He's experiencing this. And the other disciples are too. They're still in the boat, but they're watching this happen. He's out walking on the water. You know, if you have a highlight reel of your life, this would make that highlight reel. Peter is following Christ's command and coming, like he said. And he walks out to Jesus. You know, and it'd be really nice if the story could end right there and Peter and Jesus walk to the land as the sun's coming up. But that's not what happens. It's not how it ends. There is a lesson to be learned, and Christ is starting to go into teaching mode. Uh, 14, Matthew 14, 30. But seeing the wind, he, he, being Peter, became frightened and began to sink. He cried out, Lord, save me. Peter looked away, saw the wind, got frightened, began to sink. You know, and I think the order of these things is important. First thing, he took his eyes off Jesus. He started noticing the craziness of the world around him. But he's not sinking yet. Then he became frightened. And I think things have changed now. Now his thoughts are changed. His focus is no longer on Jesus. He's starting to see the world around him, how it's, what's going on. I know in my own mind it would go towards, uh, I can't do this. People can't walk on water. This is impossible. I'm going to die. And I think at some point that's what Peter started experiencing. And it was at that point that his dependence changed. And I think that's the key mark. All of a sudden he was no longer depending on Jesus but he's going to depend on himself. I can't do this. And he begins to sink. Once he started depending on himself and not Jesus, he began to sink. And that's what we do too. I know I do myself. That when we try to do life on our own, we can fail. And so now things are bad. Peter is sinking. He knows he's or probably thinking he's going to be drowned, but he makes the right response to it. His response is, Lord, save me. His dependence is instantly flipped back. He's put it back on Jesus, looking to the Lord and asking the Lord to save him. And then Jesus responded. Immediately, Jesus stretched out his hand and took hold of him and said to him, Oh, you have little faith. Why did you doubt? 
So as parents, we all know about teachable moments, and this is a teachable moment. Jesus saved him immediately, and when he pulls him up, he asks him, why did you doubt? Did you not think I could do this? He wanted Peter to be dependent. He wanted to drive in that lesson of, I can handle this. I can handle you. Trust me. Be dependent. And it's not just saying the words, Lord, save me. It's an attitude of the heart. It's when we become dependent. I know sometimes for myself, I will pray and ask for God's help. But as I think about it, a lot of times what I'm doing is I'm asking for God's assistance. I want him to help me do my thing. I'm not becoming completely dependent. I'm not asking to be saved. I'm just asking for help. God responds to us when we become fully dependent on him, when we look at him like he is our only option. And so that's what Jesus does. Why do you doubt? Jesus is saying, the wind doesn't matter, the waves don't matter. What matters is what I said to you. Come to me. You let all these things around you distract you from what I have called you to do. And you began to sink. And we do the same. We let all of life around us distract us from what God has called us to. And then we will sink. You know, and then the story ends with when they got into the boat, in verse 32, and those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, you are certainly God's son. You know, again, if you go back in the uh, version that's in John, it talks about the boat was immediately at land. Again, if you haven't had enough miracles in your life, here's one more. Jesus and Peter step back into the boat. The wind stops. They're back at land instantly. They were three or four miles out, and now they're instantly back. And obviously, all the disciples had the right response. They worshiped. They looked at God and saw what God had done and worshiped him for it. I think it's a little interesting side note. No one talks about Peter here. They're not going, wow, Peter, you walked on water, awesome. They're all just talking about what God has done. So that's a great story of just how through everyday life, Peter had to depend on the Lord. But I think we also need to depend on him in our learning, or actually probably more accurately, in our understanding of who God is. If you'll flip over to just a page or two to Matthew 16, we'll look at our second passage. Matthew 16, verses 13 through 17. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he began asking his disciples, who do the people say the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, but still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, thou art the Christ, son of the living God. Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And so Jesus is just asking a simple question. Who do they say the Son of Man is? And as I started looking through the scriptures, there's all kinds of different directions that the, word, the phrase Son of Man is used in. And as you can tell by these people's response, they had quite a different variety of expectations of who the Son of Man was. You know, some said Jeremiah, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, some say one of the other prophets. But as I look at all these people, I notice a couple of things in common. All of them were known as being sent by God. They all clearly had God's hand on them and were connected to God. And they were all seen as ones who were supposed to lead people back to God. But they didn't include Jesus in this list. 
You know, they didn't see Jesus as being sent by God. They were, most of the people saw him as Joseph's son. You know, they saw him doing miracles, but they didn't quite know how to explain that part. And they didn't necessarily see him as one who was leading people back to God. If, if anything, they saw him as being against or maybe uh, at least at odds with the religious leaders of the time. So Jesus wasn't in the list of what other people were thinking in terms of Son of Man. But then Jesus turns the question to the disciples in verses 15 and 16. He said to them, Who do you say that I am? Peter answered, You are the Christ, Son of the living God. So Jesus was asking them who they thought Peter was. And Peter uh, jumped in and spoke boldly and first, like Peter always does. But he said, You are the Christ, Son of the living God. He didn't say not just the son of a God. There were lots of those in the, in the culture at the time. But he said son of the living God, the true God, the one we've been waiting for, the one that's spoken in Genesis that would crush the serpent, the Messiah that is supposed to redeem Israel and bring Israel back to power, the Christ. And this is a big thing. He was going against a lot of religious thought, what a lot of people were thinking at this point. But he truly believed it. He called him son of God. That means a descendant, an heir, with all the power and resources of God. He was clearly saying that Jesus was God. Now, I've known a lot of people that treat someone else as if they're God, but I've never known anyone to call another person God that's living and standing in front of them. Peter was calling Jesus, who was living and standing in front of him, God. And so they're big statements. Peter didn't dilly-dally. He didn't go, uh, I think you're the Christ, or are you the Christ? He spoke boldly out of his belief. Now let me take a little sidetrack. Um, this first passage has been a favor, favorite of mine for a long time. Because what, early on when I was looking at it, I saw something very clear. I saw two groups of people that had both been around Jesus who had very different pictures of who Jesus was. And for a while, I couldn't figure that out. But the more I thought about it, the more I realized there's one clear identifier that stood out to me. One group had been around Jesus a lot. The disciples. They'd been walking with him day-to-day -day life, eating meals, lots of time, lots of interaction, hearing his teaching. And then there were all these people that just followed him. They'd show up to maybe be fed by the 5,000. If he happened to be in a nearby town, they might go over and listen to him. And so what I saw is the amount of time they spent with Jesus made the differences understanding who Jesus was. And so I continue to think that's true, and this is my little rabbit trail. The amount of time we spend with Jesus helps us to better understand who Jesus really is. If we're just kind of casually spending time with Jesus, maybe oh, I'll go to church today, I don't have anything else to do, we'll have one picture. But if we're consistently with other believers, talking about Jesus, hearing the word taught in the word ourselves, looking at who Jesus is, we'll have a different, a real understanding of who Jesus is. So that's my rabbit trail. Let's get back. We're talking about depending on the Lord for understanding. Comes in the next verse, verse 17. Jesus said, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. So, again, I, I see Jesus going into teaching mode. He wanted Peter to know why he understood what he did.
did. Flesh and blood did not reveal it to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Peter knew this only because God had helped him to know it and see and understand. God had revealed it to him, and he took it to heart and personally believed it. You know, God could have revealed this to him, and he could have ignored it. God revealed it to him, and he could have said, I don't want to deal with the consequences of what that might mean, and, and set it aside. But that didn't happen. He accepted it as true, and then he spoke it as true because he believed it. You know, this idea that uh, spiritual understanding comes from God is throughout Scripture. One of the passages I really like on it is 1 Corinthians 3, 5 through 9. Let me read that to you. 1 Corinthians 3, verses 5 through 9. What then is Apollos, and what is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one. I planted, Apollos watered, but God was causing a growth. So then neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but God who causes a growth. A who plants and he who waters are one, but each will receive his own reward according to his own labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. So as I look at this, I see a real interesting parallel of two groups working together. You know, what is Paul? What is Apollos? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord gave opportunity. They were doing something. God was doing something. I planted, Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. So one of them was sowing the seeds of the word, sharing truth to where it would go into people's hearts. And there's also parts where there's watering going on. And I was trying to figure out what watering was, and I, as I thought about uh, farmers I know, watering is providing extra things that seeds need to grow. So this could be encouragement. This could be interaction. This could be love. So that the truths that were planted will have something to grow into. I think prayer also falls into this. So man was being involved in the process, but God was causing a growth. So that neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything but God who causes the growth. Now he who plants and he who waters are one, but each will receive his own reward according to his own labor. So we will be rewarded for what we do as we plant the seed and as we water it. But God is the one who's causing the growth. We will get rewarded, but God gets the credit. You know, this is incredibly freeing to me because as I share the word, I no longer have to feel responsibility for making you obey. My job is to speak the truth, to speak it as teach as well as I can, being accurate to the scriptures, as understandable as I can, and then other believers and myself come around and help water that word. But then the growth comes from God. I don't have to make you believe. I don't have to make you obey. I just have to share the truth and then water it as I can. And so no longer do I feel this pressure that I have to keep beating on you with the truth and, oh, you don't get it yet? Here's more truth. I just have to share it and let God do the work. So in spiritual understanding, we have to be dependent on God. He's the one who will change us. We can't do it alone. God has to teach us. Our own flesh and blood won't reveal it to us. Now, I'm also not saying that we need to just step back and be passive, that 
okay, God's going to teach me. I don't have to worry about reading my Bible or studying or listening to it. No, we need to still read. We need to still study, but with an attitude of dependence. Lord, teach me. Help me to understand. Give me insight. Change my convictions. And so it's clear that God was building dependence into Peter. He was using all kinds of circumstances, miraculous ones, everyday ones, big things, hard things, scary things, all to help Peter see his need for dependence. And I think God wants that in us too. He wants us to live in that level of dependence. And so that leaves me with one question that I hopefully will give you a little bit of an answer to. How do I grow in dependence? And I just have two simple steps, but they're not easy steps. First is to admit weakness. Second is to ask for help. Sounds easy enough to say, hard to do. If you look at uh, 2 Corinthians 12, 9, it's a great passage about admitting our weakness. 2 Corinthians 12, verses 9 and 10. And he has said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I would rather boast about my weakness that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weakness, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties, for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. You know, this is so countercultural. You will never hear an advertisement that talks about, be glad you're weak. Maybe for a gym, but that they're not celebrating your weakness. As I thought about this, at first I will say God wants us to be weak. But the more I thought about it, that's not what God is after. God has given us strength and ability and wisdom, and he wants us to use them. What God wants is for us to be dependent. To know that there's a time all through life that we turn to him and look to him for strength. Now, I've experienced this a lot. Uh, those who know me know that I'm a runner. I like to run half marathons. And as I run them, somewhere around mile 9 or 10 is when it's getting to be tough. It's far enough in that I'm well spent, but it's far enough from the end that I'm not sure I'm going to make it. And what has become a tradition for me, and I do a lot, and even just sometimes when I'm training, is I repeat this phrase from Psalm 73. The phrase is, my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. God is the strength of my heart as I'm running along. God is the strength of my heart. He can carry me through this. His strength will be sufficient. I've used my strength for a while, the strength that he gave me. And as I think about it, I know God's carried me all that way too. But now I'm at the end of my strength. I need to depend on the Lord. I need God's help to carry me through. So my flesh, my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. He will carry me through when I'm weak, when I become dependent. And it's not just in circumstances of a race that I, I've realized this. Um, anytime you speak on dependence, God will take you to the point where he's going to make you sure you're dependent. And that's been my week. Several times this week I've come to that point. Several different things in life of just, okay, Lord, I have to depend on you now. I have to admit my weakness, and I ask you for help. 
And so that leads, leads us to the, the second thing we can do to grow in weakness, to grow in dependence. We're already in weakness. Um, a friend of mine calls them arrow prayers. It's what Peter prayed when he was drowning. Lord, save me. My friend calls them arrow prayers because it's not as long. It's not involved. It's just, hey, Lord, save me. Quick and easy. And so this coming week, you will hit something hard. I'm sure of it. And when you do, think of an arrow prayer. It could be like Peter's of, Lord, save me. Or it could be, Lord, help me. Lord, protect me. Lord, give me patience. Lord, take my anger. Lord, give me wisdom. It doesn't have to be long and involved. It just needs to be a quick arrow that helps express our dependence on God. Now, last week as we were singing, we had a song that, to me, just beautifully pictured this whole idea of depending on God. And I've asked Brian to uh, let us sing it again today. So let me pray while they're coming up, and we'll close with this song. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you are sufficient and that you want us to depend on you. Help us to continue to see that, to admit our need, and to lean into you and to depend on you for strength and on you to carry us through. Thank you for being the faithful Father who will walk with us and carry us. It's in Jesus' name. Amen.